Hi, guys, and welcome to Kafefe with Carter and Carrie. Today is May 16th, and we are here at Unsafe Space. <laughs> I like that you put in the date. I need to remember to put in the date when we, when we do our intros. <clears throat> you might want to tell them to subscribe. Hit, click, click the subscribe button on YouTube. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And please get a friend to subscribe. <laughs> yes. Violate the non-aggression principle and force them to subscribe. Um, what are we talking about today? There's this modern art piece. Uh, did you see this that sold for $91 million? No. So I guess, I mean, we could talk more about politics, but I don't want to. So this guy nabbed, uh, I'm reading the headline. I wouldn't use the verb nab. <laughs> this guy nabs $91 million uh, <laughs> for this thing, which for people who aren't watching, it's a sculpture of a bunny, which looks like it's made, it looks like it's a Mylar bunny balloon, kind of. It's not, there's nothing... It looks kind of like a Mylar balloon bunny without really even if it's with no face and no talent. No talent. Lack of a better word. And, uh, and I guess this is the record for the, the highest price paid to a living artist, right? So we've got some, you know, Jackson Pollock's and that kind of stuff that are more than this, but this is, this guy's still alive. So he made $91 million for, for this, this thing there. This piece of crap. You watching. And I know we, I, I know generally kind of people joke about modern art, but I think it's a, I think it's a good time to stop and not stop joking about it. Keep going. But it's a good time to pause and and consider that how how the intellectually and how the intellectual and academic community, how the elites, how the ivory towers treat modern art, is a metaphor for how they treat and actually how most people treat philosophy, uh, and how how they treat. So when I say philosophy, I mean decisions about what's right and what's wrong, right? What exists and what doesn't like moral, moral codes, like how they, how they arrive at their conclusions. And the, the reason I want to bring it up as a metaphor is because I've talked about this before, but <clears throat> these, these modern artists, well, people who like modern art in the art community generally, I mean, look, the more normal people don't look at that. So let's take a step back. I don't know whether this artist has talent somewhere else or not. Like maybe he is good at something, but normal people, average people don't look at modern art and think it's good. They have to be told it's good. And even people in the art community don't look at it and think it's good. They have to be told it's good. And it's this social consensus, right? It's, Oh, that's so-and-so's piece. Look how expressive it is. And they, you know, they use a lot of uh, adjectives and, metaphors that are disconnected from the reality of what the piece is mostly they're just floating abstractions and they're they heap praise upon 
upon works of art that is arbitrary, right? So anything anyone says about a Jackson Pollock painting, you could say about a five-year-old's crown drawing, or actually probably five is too old, maybe a two-year-old's crown drawing, right? So there's not really anything you can say about that that's objectively, uh, that can be objectively evaluated, can't be held to any standards. It's just, you attach a bunch of adjectives to it, you attach a bunch of praise to the stuff that you want, sometimes based on who it is or who they know, or, but, but sometimes just kind of as an emergent property from the art community generally, like someone makes some comments on something and someone else feels like they have to agree for some reason. And before you know it, it's kind of like the emperor's new clothes. It bubbles up to this uh, position of value in the art world. And you've got this piece of crap selling for $91 million and everyone applauds and calls this guy a great artist, but there's nothing real there. It's just, it's just a talk about a social construct social justice like it's just a social construct it's just the community it's, has decided it, that go ahead no i mean i hear what you're saying we've talked about this a little bit before it's it, paul joseph watson does a lot of videos about this if anyone's interested um he's one of the uh unpersons now at facebook but um it's about it's it's postmodernism and and it's in philosophy like you said and it's in art and it's a destruction of truth and it's a destruction of objective standards so right. objectively, this is not anything great. Like you said, the average person can look at it and say, that's nothing. Um, but they, they get rid of objectivity. Yeah, but I, so I, I agree it is actually a function of postmodernism. And, but I, I want to get into the psychology a little. I wanted to talk about it from a psychological angle, a little bit less than a philosophical angle. Mm -hmm. because I don't think that the people who, who purchased this or, well, I don't know the people who purchased it, but I don't I don't think the community who who praises this kind of stuff does so because they are wed to philosophical ideals and they're trying to consciously propagate them. I think they do it because they are uh I've used this term before uh, I think it was coined by Ayn Rand but I'm not sure it's called uh social metaphysicians. They are they it's peer pressure. It's so it's kind of oh, like yeah. school, right? So they feel pressure to agree, just like the emperor's new clothes. And that's what creates this. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And so it's driven by this weird, like, it's driven by this psychological mass delusion that is propagated every time someone vocalizes agreement and every time someone who vocalizes disagreement is shunned. And so it's just this group of immature junior high schoolers, basically, who are now adults, who are trying to decide who's cool for arbitrary reasons. And the reason I want, I don't, I don't care about modern art. I don't even, I mean, I like art, but I don't, I'm not into art so much that I care very passionately about the art world. But I do think it's a metaphor for how actually people tend to treat their values generally in society right? They tend to think, well, whatever anyone else is saying is good is, is good, right? And it's, it's dangerous because in the realm of morality, it's, you don't end up with just an ugly bunny. You end up with death, 
right? You end up with like totalitarianism and evil dictators and like horrible, horrible stuff happens when you do this. In the art world, yeah, you end up with some wasted resources and, you know, stuff that years later people can laugh at. But in the world of politics and in the world of morality, you end up with, you end up killing people when your standard of deciding what's right and wrong is driven by your emotional need to fit in with whatever group you're in. And so this gets back to Carrie, I'm, I guess maybe I'm almost agreeing with you about a lot of the social justice warriors, or at least a lot of people in the, especially around the academia and in, in media. I don't, I don't think a lot of them are consciously choosing this philosophy but they are pressured psychologically into, and emotionally, they're pressured into belonging and having a sense of belonging in this group. And to do that, you nod your head and say that Jackson Pollock is great, that this stupid bunny is worth $91 million, and that you know, uh, sex is a social construct and, and uh, you know, identity, your, your group identity matters more than anything else. And so you'll say whatever it is, you say that racism is prejudice plus power, because that's what you need to say to belong and fit into your group. And I would just encourage, yeah. You know, neither Carrie nor I am advocating for joining a different group. Don't agree with anything that we say because we say it passionately or because uh, we'll not, I mean, I don't, we don't have that much power, but not just us, anyone from any opposing view, you don't agree with them because it feels uncomfortable to disagree with them. Stop and think about it and treat it like you would treat modern art if you weren't in the art community. Look, look, stand back and look at it objectively and, and look at this, you know, I'll put a picture of this thing up again just to remind you, right? Look at this thing. Look at this. I don't know what it's made out of. Aluminum, steel, something. Stainless steel rabbit. Look at this stainless steel rabbit and look at, look at belief systems like the stainless steel rabbit. Give, it, give them, step back and look at how ridiculous they are and don't be drawn in just because people around you are paying $91 million for a steel rabbit or shouting on Facebook or social media or anywhere else in your life about their belief loudly enough that you feel like you've got to agree. That's all. This makes me think of my friend that I was talking about the other day. He, he actually posted this. He admitted to it online. He said, does anybody else have opinions about something like a piece of film or whatever? And then they, they share those opinions and then they see smart people on social media criticizing those things that they liked. You know, that happens to me every day. And I realize I'm wrong. It's like, no, you're not wrong. You may not be wrong. Why are you listening to all those people that you're calling smart people? Right. You know, it's a, like you said, it is a peer pressure thing. And I'm glad you agree with me. There are a lot of SJWs who are not in this because they consciously know what it is. Nobody's like buying that piece of art because they're, by the way, I was going to, I was going to comment on the fact that at some point you slipped out that art that was behind you on the wall and put something else there. I did. You know why? Uh, I actually liked the art that was behind me on the wall, but it had, um, 
even though it was anti-reflective glass, it had glass and the screens around me were always reflecting off of it in a really annoying mm -hmm. way. And so uh, I swapped it out with that one, which has no glass over it. That one's just a replica of a uh, Hippolyte Flandrin, uh, which is, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's- um, It's nice. We can actually talk about something that one of our viewers <laughs> brought to my attention this morning. Anne on YouTube commented about this and I hadn't, I hadn't heard about this and it's disturbing. So this, I'll put up another article here. So thank you, Anne, for pointing this out. <clears throat> so this is an article in the Wall Street Journal today. Well, it says Wall Street Journal here, but it also looks like it's on MSN. So Oh my gosh. SAT to give students adversity score to hey. capture social and economic background. My thunder, lady. <laughs> well, I'm just seeing this for the first time. Yeah. So SAT scores are giving, the SATs are going to give adversity scores to capture the social and economic backgrounds of their students. College board plans to assign an adversity score to every student who takes the SAT to try to capture their social and economic background. Jumping okay, this is, this is what, I mean, this is related. This is also postmodernism. This is all related. Like, yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all related. But here's, here's, my, favorite, here's <laughs> my favorite line. The purpose is to get to race without using race, said Anthony Carnifal, director of Georgetown University's Center on Education and Workforce. Uh, so, yes, that is the purpose. So basically what they're, what they're arguing, we can go through this article here, but they, um, it's a new number. It's called an adversity score. Here, I'll put it back up while I'm reading it. It's calculated using 15 factors, including the crime rate and poverty levels from the students' high school and neighborhoods. Students will not be told the scores, but colleges will see the numbers when reviewing their applications. 50 colleges used these scores last year, which I didn't realize uh, as a test. And now they're going to up it to 150 schools. And they, they really are, I mean, I won't read this whole article. They're really focused on, the word they use is diversity, obviously. And they're really focused on getting, quote, diverse, diverse classes. So the new score, which falls on a scale of 1 through 100, will pop up on something called the Environmental Context Dashboard, which shows several indicators of relative poverty, wealth, and opportunity, as well as the student's SAT score, compared with those of their classmates. On a dashboard, the score is called the overall disadvantage level. So the average score is 50. Below it is a hardship. College Board declined to say how it calculates the adversity score. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet they did. Or the factors that weigh into it. One of the disturbing and interesting, well, one of the disturbing things about this is what they're doing is, well, two things. First of all, they, they've noticed that the education level and the wealth of the parents has an effect or is correlated to higher SAT scores. Now, what they don't dive into is the causation there. And I know Correlation is not causation is something that has at least become more commonplace for people to be aware of, which is great. But there have been studies on this. The, your 
SAT is kind of a proxy for IQ and IQ does correlate to, again, correlate, um, but, and, and, but actually does seem to be not just correlative, but predictive of your success in your economic success later in life. So, and we know that, that IQ is, there is genetic. It's largely genetic. It's not completely genetic, even if it's half and half. I think it's a little bit more than half. Generally, I don't remember exactly, but it's at least half genetic, right? So you would expect people with higher IQs to have better economic success, and you would expect their children to therefore have, better, have higher IQs. So this may be a problem that they don't like, but it's important to step back and realize just because people from higher socioeconomic status tend to have kids with better SAT scores does not mean that the SAT scores are biased. That correlation could be due to something else. And I don't think they're investigating that at all. I don't think they Well, want. they don't have to investigate that. Can I, can I interject here? They don't want to. No. So none of this just, this just makes me really angry. So um, it, it, this is like, to go back, this is postmodernism. This is like nothing matters. Objectivity doesn't matter. How you do on a test doesn't matter. We don't like reality. So we're going to try and shape it the way we want. This is a quality of outcome. This is not a quality of opportunity. And people move from, they jump from economic status all the time. Like people don't stay fixed. People have, people go from making nothing to making a lot of money and vice versa all the time in these different groups. And, you know, if you are a society, things, life is set up to reward hard work and, you know, good work ethic, um, the things that are going to allow you to build a stable home environment for your children and, you know, provide them with, um, with, with the tools or with the genetics or whatever that, you know, that that's going to help them later in life. Like if you're picking a good spouse, if you're picking someone who's going to be a good father or mother for your kids, um, life rewards those kind of choices. That's what life is. This isn't like, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here now. It just, it, they are trying to fix problems and they are making more problems. Like they are making things worse. It's, it's not just IQ, it's work ethic, it's a whole bunch of other stuff. And your, your life choices lead you to potentially give your kid a better environment and then your kid do better. And, and- right. And people come from those adv- – I just sent you a clip if we could play part of it. People come from nothing and, and make something of themselves. And you are removing the incentive for them to do that because you're saying it doesn't matter. We're going to make – it doesn't matter what you score. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter if you do, if you work to pull yourself out of adverse circumstances, we're going to hand that same thing to the person next to you who didn't like this infuriates me because then why work for anything? Why? What is the incentive? <laughs> like it shouldn't I do anything to make it worse. I don't want to infuriate you more, but I do like it when you're angry. Um, it's not actually your socioeconomic status that they're taking into account. It's your community's socioeconomic status. Oh, yeah. Worse than that, it's not even saying, well, you scored this, but you have a particularly hard childhood because we know your parent, your dad is a drunk and beats your mom and you've had these other adverse experiences and, and you don't have enough food and that's distracting and blah, blah. They're not looking at you as an individual. They're looking at, 
the, the community you belong to. And you may not have any problems. And there may be a kid in the community next door who is maybe from a, might be from a wealthy family who's got lots of problems and that, that are. Because they are all about collectivism. This goes back to, they care about the groups. They don't care about you as an individual. That's my point. This is all about, this is all about groups. Can you, can you play that clip? I don't know if you guys are familiar with Thomas Sowell. I, I was not until I started leaving my SJW echo chamber, but he's brilliant. And he talks about this very thing about, about thank God I had a teacher. He's like, thank God I had a teacher who held me to high standards. Thank God I had a teacher who cared about me enough to not make excuses for me or to come up with reasons why I should get the thing that I don't deserve because I didn't do the work. You know, like thank God I had someone who cared enough to push me and to, and to, um, and to hold me to those standards. So soul is great. If you don't know about Thomas soul. Okay. Here's the clip. Uh, that you wanted, I think. Thank, thank you very much. I guess the first thing to do is to def- define what cosmic justice is as distinguished from whatever other kind of justice uh, we may be familiar with. Uh, traditional justice, I guess we can summarize, at least in the American uh, tradition, as applying the same rules and the same standards to everybody. Cosmic justice is very different. It means equalizing the prospects of everybody. And those two things are not only different in concept, they are wholly incompatible with one another. If you apply the same rules and standards to everybody uh, in baseball, Mark McGuire is going to hit 70 home runs, and there are going to be other people who will spend an entire career without hitting 70 home runs, including people in the Hall of Fame like Luke Appling, who twice won the batting championship. So if you want the one thing or the other, you can go for it. But the one thing you cannot do is pursue the two things simultaneously. Or rather, you cannot successfully do that. The Supreme Court has been pursuing the two things simultaneously for quite a, quite a while, leading to a lot of five to four decisions uh, and inconsistent decisions. The requirements for the two kinds of justice are very different. The requirement for um, treating everyone the same is very simple. It's mass produced. Uh, The requirements for cosmic justice must be handmade and tailored to each individual case. Uh, It's much more complex and it requires a much larger amount of government power. Some third party must intervene to determine whether the outcomes are right, whether the prospects are right. Words, the very same words have entirely different meanings within these two frameworks. In fact, as I mentioned in the preface to the book, what really set me off a few years ago to finish it up was a discussion with one of my colleagues at Stanford University, who shall be anonymous in deference to the libel laws, (laughs) uh, who talked about a level playing field. And it became plainly clear that what he called a level playing field is what I would have called a tilted playing field tilted so as to produce the results that he wanted. When we talk about a fair fight, that means very different things in these two, within these two frameworks. Uh, a fair fight by traditional standards means that both boxers observe the Marcus of Queensberry rules, and the fight is fair whether it ends up in a draw or a one-sided beating. From the other point of view, from the cosmic perspective, it's fair only when the two fighters enter the ring with the same prospects of winning. 
I love this clip. And if you guys haven't seen it, you can go on YouTube and we could put the, the link in the description, but it's, it's him talking about, um, I think it's got cosmic justice in the title, but he goes on to talk about his personal experience and about his teachers and, 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 and about how glad he is that people held him to a standard. See, here's the thing. I used to, I used to teach SAT prep for the Princeton review, like, um, for to 11th graders who are getting ready to take the, the standardized test. I taught two different classes. I taught for the um, people who were, who could afford the, like the, 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 I, I guess you would say middle to upper class people who could afford the actual classes for their kids. And then I taught to kids in the inner city who had a special reduced price program at their schools to bring us in. Those kids really wanted to be there. <laughs> Those kids were working their ass off. Whereas a lot of the rich kids were being forced to be there by mom and daddy, you know, after school and didn't really care and kind of mess around. And the kids who were at the inner city schools, like work their butts off. And if you're telling them there's no reason to do that because you're going to give them some because they're so disadvantaged, they're going to get some special handicap point. <laughs> like, why show up? Why come and do those classes? Like, why, why try and improve? Because you're going to get a handicap score. Like, it, it, yes, it infuriates me. But what do, you, what do you think of that clip? It was tangentially related. <laughs> oh, you know, no, I think it is. It's, I think it's I mean, absolutely it's related. Philosophy generally, it didn't seem specifically to education. Um, oh, but he does get into education later in that clip. But he's like setting up the groundwork. It's like you can look at the world in these two different ways. It's like, is it like he talks about? Is it a le actual level playing field, or is it what you're what the social justice warriors want, or what these people here who are instituting this little handicap score want, which is a tilted playing field, which is never going to be le level. You can't you can't rig the playing field and then say, hopefully everything's going to even out now and it's going to become level. And like he said, it also requires a ton of oversight. Like who are the people who are determining what kind of handicap scores people get in life? Like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're talking, it's, it's Harrison Bergeron basically by the end. Totally. Of the so, totally. Um, the difference with that is Harrison Bergeron is actually superior to this because at least it was on an individual level. And so, uh, it was, uh, they were right. at least going down and seeing what each person's situation was like and trying to quote adjust for that. This is just, you happen to live in this community. So we don't care about, this is very clear that they don't care about you as an individual, no matter what group you're in. They just care about you as a representative of the group. They just care about the group. So if this has the group effect they want, they don't give a crap whether it's just for any particular individual in this group. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, the, the outcomes-based thing, the level playing field thing, I mean, that's, that's not just here, that's everywhere. And I mean, there's a lot of, we've talked about that uh, ad nauseum, I feel like there's a lot of that, you know, reality is that people are different. And the only way to make them all the same is to make them all equally disabled, right? I mean, that there's no... You know, th there's there's no way to make everyone equal. They're all equal when they're dead. Right. right. You make everyone equal as you kill them. And the two choices are you either treat everyone equally, which is the ideal, <laughs> or you do this social justice back ass word, like let's let's reverse engineer this and let's 
tilt everything and give certain people handicap scores and then actually handicap other people and discriminate against other people on, on the basis of just arbitrary things that we've selected that are important. Well, so the, actually, these are, I, they're arbitrary, but there's a goal here. And they reveal their goal very honestly, actually. Uh, their goal, I'll, I'll reread this quote, right? But their goal here, the purpose is to get to race without using race. So they can't use race because they're being sued for using race, right? There's uh, Asian Americans. So this is one of those things that this is why Asians, my, my, my wife and I talk about this a lot. Asians are screwed because uh, they're, they're becoming more and more hated by the left because they, they ruin the narrative of white privilege and white racism being the dominant factor that affects how people succeed in society because Asians outperform whites in every measurable category of, you know, school, economically, Asians, income level. Yeah. Asians do better. So it's, it ruins the narrative of the social justice. Carter, world. this is what is known as a hate fact. Right. So because <laughs> the narrative, um, but you can tell they've started to attack the Asians directly in Berkeley. There was a sign uh, I saw about a year ago that someone was holding up saying Asian silence is violence. So uh, they're, oh they're yeah, there's and there's white silence is violence signs too. But yeah, they are attacking Asians directly, more directly, and they they are uh, what I've seen happening is it's the same kind of, uh, it's a little bit different. It, they shame white allies as well, but they're doing a very special kind of shaming. Um, that's like you know you're you're a group of people again because they treat everyone like groups because they're racist. Right. Um, but they're like, you, you're a group of people of color who are doing well. If you want to be a good ally, you have to say these things and believe these things. And it's a, right. it's a really intense kind of shaming if you don't do that. And you're not a good ally then, you know, and you're, they, but, but you're right. It, it ruins their, it destroys their narrative and they don't have an answer for it. When you bring it up, when they start talking about white privilege and you're like, so if white privilege is a thing in, then why is it that in all these different categories like you said every metric asian americans are do better than white americans on average so why is that if you ask an sjw that like report back what their answers are because they don't have an answer what they'll do instead is is here's a their weird judo flip they'll call you a racist <laughs> <laughs> they'll say that you're engaging in see they have all these different buzzwords they use to shut things down if they can't because they can't answer questions so if you ask them that question they'll say Oh, you're using the model minority trope. That's all they say. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> they don't have an answer. They'll just, they're just calling you, you're bad because you're using this model, you're pointing to the model minority. No, I'm asking a legit, logical, reasonable question that you have no response to. Right. Um, so they, they be, they've, if you look at, what's been happening in colleges, there have been lawsuits against universities, I think Harvard was one of them, um, by Asians for discrimination based on race because the universities were trying to discriminate based on race uh, because they don't want Asians and whites. They want blacks and Latinos or whatever. I don't know who, who their favorites are, but you know they're racists. So they're trying to make sure the race composition looks a certain way. And so they're discriminating against the races that they don't want and of course, uh, 
if you know anything about a lot of Asian culture, well, one of the reasons they're very, one of the reasons they're very uh, successful academically is they, the parents care very much about how much work the kid is putting in, um, and very they care very much about their education. And so, of course, they sued because it's very important to Asian parents that this doesn't happen. So um, anyway, what they're trying to do, which they're admitting, is they're trying to get around this by using non-racial metrics to adjust the racial uh, makeup of the student body. That's their goal. But that's right? why I said it's arbitrary. Because yes, their goal is, is to, is because they're racist, is to racially, like, make it make an impact here to change things based on race but they're picking arbitrary things like you said that they think are going to help within that regard so they're looking at a group and saying they're picked no but no i mean but they are picked for a reason but they're arbitrary in that there's no i might be using the wrong word there's no evidence they're going to even have the impact they think it's going to have and they're not like like well let's let's do it based on socioeconomic level of this neighborhood but they have no idea who's in that neighborhood like they have it, it's, demographically a little right, bit. Right, but it doesn't necessarily correlate with race, though. Like it's not like it's they right, can't it necessarily correlate with race. Right. It could, um, but it might. It, I mean, I assume they're picking things that they think do correlate with race, so they can get to their end goal. I mean, that's that's their um, that's their ultimate solution. And you know, I I think there's a we could have whole episodes. In fact, at some point I would like to get uh, some IQ experts or some SAT experts on the show, but you know, we could have whole conversations about this, but the, from what I understand of IQ tests, the, uh, there are problems with, I won't even say problems. There are different performances on IQ, but when you, between racial groups, but when you adjust for social economic status and a lot of other things, um, they remain. So it's actually very difficult to get rid of those differences. Why those differences are, whether they're cultural or whatever they are, I don't know. But the assumption from these leftists is that if there is a disparity, it must be racism. And that's... An, a false assumption. And it might be that, like we talked about before, it might be, a, it could be a cultural thing. I mean, I know there's people who argue that it's genetic. I don't know, I don't know, but it could be a cultural thing where, look, go, go look at a tiger mom and how she treats her kids. No wonder they do better on. <laughs> and it's, and it's not racism because if it were, Asian Americans would not be at the top of this stack. Like right. on average, right? Like it's not a, unless you believe we live in a, um, you know, Asian privileged society, which they won't say, oh, uh, we live in a, in a Asian supremacist country. Yes. And, you know, like, please, yeah. please talk about your Asian privilege. You know, like it's just, they, their whole thing is bullshit. Um, so, but, getting, but if you care about kids and if you actually, even if you cared about racial disparities, you would roll up your sleeves and try and figure out what the hell was actually going on. You wouldn't just try and adjust a whole bunch of crap to make sure people with the right melanin content are in your, you know, make up your student body. You would say, because, because you're also setting people up to fail. If people get there and they are 
academically not prepared, whether they're white or Asian or black or Latino, it doesn't matter whether they get there. If they're unprepared, if they're there for some reason other than their academic ability, ultimately they have a higher probability of failing, which failing is... Well, and, and the entire university system is failing because of this. This is why you see stats now. We have college graduates who don't have a basic reading comprehension level that they used to have. Like you have people going to college now who, who at some point it, there, it became like every, everyone has to go to college and, uh, and you've got people going that would not have been accepted to certain school. Like they've, all the standards have been reduced because. Of I don't think it's just, I don't think though, I would not say that that's the reason the education system is failing. I think they're also uh, teaching crap that's useless. Oh, they totally are. It's all related, but this is a reason you, the standards have dropped and, yes. and this isn't just happening in, uh, college colleges. It's happening. And we did a whole episode way early on when we started doing deprogrammed. If you guys haven't seen it, maybe we could put this link in there too. Um, the New York city school district they're doing they're So they have these advanced schools and they're too overwhelmingly Asian. They say, so it's same thing. De Blasio's like doesn't want to doesn't want to uh, he can't he can't address it on the race level because that that would be he would be sued, but he wants to address the race thing. So he's doing the same thing. He's offer he's lowering the standards for these special schools. Um, so and they're they're trying to pull from the socioeconomically depressed areas. Except here's the thing they can't answer for. I can't remember, it's been a while since we did that video, but it's something like 40% or something, something high of all the students who already go, who go there um, are already from those poor areas, but they're poor Asian kids. They're the kids of Asian immigrants who are working their butts off to actually pass the test and get into the school. And those kids are the ones that are gonna suffer. Poor Asian kids are gonna suffer because he doesn't like the optics, the racial optics at the school. It's, it's completely messed up. and the, and and so, yeah, it's happening at colleges. It's happening at, at um, it's happening in New York City at the, at the um, special high schools. But this whole issue, it, it just really, I didn't know we were going to talk about this today. <laughs> and I came really close to yeah. yelling. <laughs> I probably am yelling. I don't, it just makes you me, are, but it's good. <laughs> it makes me so angry. Because the other, one other thing, this hurts the very people you say you're trying to help. You, you are creating you have so little faith in people being able to pull themselves out of adverse situations and to work for what they want. You have so little faith in that, that you're treating them like children. It's paternalistic. You're like, you're basically like black people are never going to be able to go to these schools. We're going to have to give them, we're going to have to reduce the scores so they can get in. We're going to have to give him the big old handicap things so they can get in. Like, it's so messed up. It's it's the bigotry of condescending and racist, huh? Condescending and racist. It's condescending. It's racist, and you're actually setting up a system and a scenario that doesn't incentivize the very people that you claim to be trying to help to work harder. Like it doesn't incentivize them to actually to to like like those kids who were coming to my SAT class. It doesn't. There's no incentive for them to work harder because it's like. You're oh poor you you're so you're so dumb or whatever we're gonna give you this thing you don't even have to come like you're treating them in a very prejudiced way. There was a study that came out recently that said that um, white liberals I should look this up but white liberals 
talk down, like when they talk to black people, they, they bring their uh, vocabulary down. Isn't that weird? Like they adjust the way they talk because they're so friggin' racist and they don't real, and they're like, and they, I'm sure they think they're being, um, they're, they're somehow, this is in the service of equality is to talk down to people of color. It's so racist, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, if we step back for a minute, we can yell at people who are implementing this, but they're not watching this show and they don't care. So no. let's talk just for a moment to the people who are listening, who disagree with this and who understand that it's racist. There's two points I would make. One is, it, don't rely on, one of the problems is when people my age, if I didn't know about this, which I wouldn't if I wasn't doing this show, I would be off you know, doing my own thing. I hear SAT score, I assume it's the same SAT as when I took, and that's not even true already. They've already changed the SAT score, so the scores don't even correlate. Um, but I also would think, oh, you went to Harvard, or oh, you went to blah, blah, blah. Wherever you went, I would, uh, I, I probably wouldn't, which is one of the reasons I'm doing the show. But in general, other people would, be, would, would transfer, they, they would assume that there's a certain amount of uh, academic excellence and, and ability correlated to, to your school. And if you're hiring people, it's important to realize that going to Stanford, going to Harvard, going to MIT, aren't, it's not what it used to be. Yes, there are super brilliant kids that go there. Absolutely. And probably more than that go to you know, UCSB. But just the fact that you went there doesn't mean you're brilliant. It doesn't mean that you learned anything. It doesn't mean that you belonged there. And frankly, uh, a lot of those schools, yeah, some of the science they're teaching is still good, but a lot of the other crap that you're learning in that school is counterproductive. And we're now in a world, and this is important for people who hire to remember, we're in a world where you don't have to go to school at all to have access to any information that you want. MIT's got classes online. Stanford's got classes online. Harvard probably does as well. Johns Hopkins does. Johns Hopkins does. You, there are oppor there's opportunities to learn from the best minds in the world, anything you want. And autodidacts who want to do that are, are better educated by far than any of the people who went to any of these prestigious universities. And so it's time to, to it's time to, to wipe the, well, I was gonna say to take the wipe, wipe the shine off of, it's time to recognize that talking about, we talked about Emperor's New Clothes earlier with respect to modern art. Ivy League schools and these, prestige, these prestigious universities, they are the modern art of education. That's what they are. They're and full of crap. Look, here's a good example. David Hogg. Yes, David Hogg is now at Harvard, right? <laughs> so, David, David Hogg got a 1270 on his SAT. Right. That's 200 points lower than the average at Harvard. Yes. Why just, did he get in? Politics. That's even post SAT score change, right? Which was... A while ago so it's for older people that's equivalent of like even, that's like a, a 900 <laughs> yeah right? so it's pretty low right um yeah anyway that's that's what they're it doesn't mean that you shun anyone who went to those schools they may be brilliant and and obviously obviously there's still some value there but 
we're moving to a world where that doesn't matter. And you know, if you're in a position to hire people, stop caring about what school they went to. Figure out other ways to evaluate whether they're a good fit and can do the work because what school they went to is irrelevant. And I hope, I, I'm, a, um, I'm not a collapsitarian completely, but I am when it comes to the educational system. I hope the universities collapse and burn. I so, like, so do I. Hope they die. So uh, keep going with your manipulating SAT scores, guys. Keep doing more of this. In fact, you know, I think you should throw in some randomness and, uh, you know, throw out, throw out MIT degrees on the streets of uh, any major city you want to. It doesn't matter. In the rural, I don't care. You know, just uh, give them away for free. Nothing means anything anymore. Yeah, we'll just make it mean nothing because uh, no one needs you anymore, university. There's, there's something called the internet. So. Yeah. And read Thomas Sowell. Oh, angry. I look, I, you got me all riled. I gotta, get, I gotta go. This is a really great book. Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. It replaces a degree in, from a university in basic economics or economics. Maybe not completely. There's probably other stuff you need to read. But it's most of a degree. And actually, if you read and understood the book, uh, you would be more economically literate than most kids with economics degrees. So uh, Thomas Sowell is a brilliant guy, and it's a great book. So I'll link to that as well. That's all. So I have something on the shelf behind me. I had to leave the room. Sorry. Oh, yeah. We'll, have, we'll edit that a little bit. Okay, so we have to go. Um, I just wanted to say announce because this just came in Carter while we're talking. So I think we can, I think yes. we can announce it now. We're, yeah. We're going to have a, a special guest today on deprogrammed. We're going to have Zuby. I don't know if you guys follow him on Twitter. It's Zuby music, Z U B Y music. Um, he's, he's amazing. <laughs> uh, he's also the uh, women's deadlift champion. In the he UK. is the women's deadlift champion. <laughs> Um, but this is really exciting. I think this will be one of the, uh, uh, this will be one of the ones that you definitely want to tune into. So we're probably, are we starting a half hour? Early? Yes. We're going to start half an hour early guys. So we're going to be starting at, um, 1030 Pacific. Yeah. And 1230 Texas time. Awesome. So see you then. Great. On that note, uh, that means I have more work to do right now. So I'm going to go, <laughs> we'll stop this video and I'll get it up as soon as possible. And we'll see you guys at 1030. Thanks. Bye-bye.